Last week I began speaking about the happiness we experience when the mind is free of its distortions, its obstructions, the happiness of a pure mind. I spoke briefly about two of the primary hindrances, sloth and torpor and doubt, and the factors of mind which directly oppose them. And I spoke about the ability of the mind to connect with our experience moment after moment, being the factor of mind which directly opposes sleepiness and dullness, bringing lightness, energy, and a real flexibility to the mind where the mind is able to be with any number of and wide range of experience. Secondly, I spoke about the ability to sustain our attention on our experience after connecting with it as being the factor of mind which most directly opposes doubt or wonderment or bewilderment about what our experience is in any moment. And when we have the ability to connect and sustain our attention with this moment's experience, then we know clearly, confidently, what the experience is. And we see deeply into and beneath the surface of the appearance only. And when we have this connecting and sustaining and ability to be with each experience as it arises in the moment, the mind becomes very energetic, very light, very pliable and adaptable, reasonably balanced and open to the whole range of mental and physical phenomena that we see. And there comes in the wake of that ability to connect and sustain, there comes a recognition that indeed just connecting and sustaining our attention on experience leads to clarity of mind. And it's really something that we need to see in our practice, that just being with the experience for as long as it lasts reveals its nature. We see what happens to it. We see where it goes. We see where the mind goes next. And we begin to understand what continuity of attention is. So tonight I want to continue speaking about the remaining three major obstructions or clouds that distort our view and experience of the pure mind. The familiar aversion in all of its forms, restlessness, and clinging. And I want to speak about each of them pointing to how we can recognize them, how we can open to them, how we can bring some balance 
in our mind when they arise, when we experience them, how we can understand them, and how we can disidentify from the apparent grasping nature that they have or the uh, clouding nature that they have in the mind. We know from watching our experience and from discovering our nature as we sit and walk that as pleasant experiences arise, we often attach to them and and somehow want them to continue or believe them to be um, what we're here for, whether it's a little stillness, a little quiet, a little clarity, a little comfort in the body. And when unpleasant experiences arise, pain and discomfort and, and frustration in the mind and difficulty of one sort or another, we often think that something's gone wrong. But these judgments of our experience, the judgments of, oh, this is good, and I like it, and I think I want more of this, or the judgment of, this is bad, and uh, uh, this is an indication of bad practice, these judgments obscure and distort our actual experience of things as they are. By definition, we could say that these distortions of mind, attachment and clinging, um, disliking, uh, disappointment, frustration, restlessness and agitation, cannot lead to happiness. By By their very definition, we couldn't expect to feel happy that reasonable contentment and being at ease with ourself when these distortions are clouding our vision. So just to remind you, when these distortions, any of the hindrances are present in the mind, the mind is essentially and basically confused about what the experience is in actuality. So there's always an accompanying delusion with any of the hindrances. Along with it is a degree of restlessness where the mind is ill at ease with the experience, not settled precisely and carefully on the experience. And when the mind is obstructed, deluded, hindered, then our sense of what is right and wrong is also confused. Our sense of what our own standards of value and esteem for ourselves and others becomes confused. And when we're angry, we'll say and do whatever feels necessary to make the point, even if later, with more careful and sensitive reflection, We know that what we said was harmful, came from a hurtful place, temporarily abandoning our own wisdom. 
when the mind is clouded, deluded by the hindrances. So the first of the hindrances I want to talk to, talk about tonight is aversion. Now when the mind is able to be precisely and carefully with our experience, when we're able to connect and sustain our attention on the primary object, the very neutral breath or leg movement or whatever you're using for your primary object, when that ability becomes mature and we can stay with our experience moment after moment after moment, we begin to see more details. We see more carefully what's happening with the breath. So that when other experience arise, whether it's a physical experience or a mental experience, we also have the ability to connect and sustain carefully and precisely on them also, seeing more details. So when we see the physical and mental stuff that's continually appearing in the mind, we may not like it when we see it in its detail. And so aversion sets in. Aversion being the disliking, the pushing away from, withdrawing from, resisting our experience in any way. You may have noticed how aggressive dosa, dosa is the Pali word for all forms of aversion, you may have noticed how aggressive dosa or aversion is in the mind and how harsh and um, strongly it moves the mind and body around and how self-righteous and justified we can become in our anger. It's important to begin to distinguish the difference between dukkha, the unpleasantness of experience, and dosa, which is aversion to it. The unpleasantness of physical or mental experience is one experience. Our resistance and dislike and aversion and withdrawing from it is another movement of the mind. And it's at this point precisely that the Buddha pointed to the possibility of liberation. If it wasn't possible to distinguish unpleasantness from our dislike of it, we would be victimized or at the whim of whatever arose. But it's because there is a distinction in the mind between unpleasantness and disliking, we have the opportunity to be free. Dosa, or aversion, in any of its forms, really distorts our view of and experience of the unpleasantness itself. The third Zen patriarch said, the great way is not difficult for those who have no attachment to their preferences. 
when love and hate are both absent, everything becomes clear and undisguised. So that if we can see through our attachment, love for, or aversion, hate of the experience, then everything becomes clear and undisguised. When anger or aversion, frustration or disappointment arises or begins to cloud the mind, the first step is to recognize it, is to actually acknowledge that disliking of this experience is taking place. To begin to open to the fact that aversion or anger or unhappiness due to unpleasantness is present. I think a lot of us have the judgment that being an angry person is not nice. And so when we discover that we are angry or frustrated or disappointed, we often deny it. And when we can't or when we feel that we don't have any control over the source of that um, frustration or frustrating situation, then it's very difficult to see just what it is. When we understand that the reaction of dislike and withdrawing aversion or disappointment comes from some memory in the past or from some imagined uh, future, we can begin to understand the conditional nature of the arising of this obstruction in the mind. It comes because of a painful past memory, an imagined future that we don't want. You may notice also the quality of mind when aversion is present how carefully the mind can discriminate and notice every little thing about this situation that we don't like. You know the person that irritates you here? Have you noticed how they walk, how they look, how they dress, how they come into the hall, how they, how they eat, how they wash their plate? You notice everything about the source of your anger or your frustration. The mind becomes highly discriminatory. There are various techniques for uh, arousing opposition to anger, whether it's uh, practicing metta or loving kindness or just practicing patience or bringing some uh, brightness and, and, and joy into the mind by reflecting on previous practice, reflecting on the qualities of the Buddha, and many ways to bring a brightness to the mind that is really burnt by aversion, by dosa. We can also reflect carefully on who is it that's hurting 
when you're angry at someone. The other person is not particularly hurt. We ourselves are most uncomfortable when we're angry. And I think a lot of us here in the West don't know that. And we think that if I get angry at someone, they'll do what I want them to do. But when you go to Asia and you try that, and there's plenty of opportunity with the what we would consider pretty chaotic uh, service that you get there, whether it's trying to get a visa or a hotel room, when you get angry and scream and rage and, and try to pressure them, they look at, like, at you like, what's the matter with you? And in fact, what is the matter with you? They could care less that you're angry. And it's really a, a, a real accurate reflection of our attachment or our belief that if I get angry, I can make someone do what I want them to do. Who's suffering? Sometimes just that reflection can allow us to let go of that particular anger or situation or justification. Another reflection that can help to cut through anger and frustration, Michelle and I discovered some years ago when we were going through our separation and we were having a reasonably smooth, difficult time. And in one of our conversations uh, in Amherst somewhere, we weren't communicating very well and we ended up really irritated with each other and had a hard time saying goodbye gently. And I came back to the center and she went to where she was staying in Northampton. And later we, after some days or weeks, when we were able to reconnect with each other, we acknowledged to each other that we didn't want to live that way because we didn't want to die with that being our last time together. If one of us had gotten in any accident or whatever had happened, our last memory would have been of outrageous anger. And it just wasn't worth it to us, even in the moment of difficulty, to consider a life like that. And it helps to cut through so much justification and uh, rationalization of why I should be angry or why I am angry or frustrated or disappointed to just say, I don't have time to live like this. And it's not a denial. It can be a very clear seeing through the conditional nature of that mind state and letting go of it in that clarity of seeing. And it's with that clarity of seeing that we disidentify from it. Disidentification coming from the clarity rather than a willful pushing away. Rather coming from the clarity of seeing through and letting go of the source of pain. Other ways of dealing with 
anger, aversion, is to develop consciously to arouse patience, generosity, equanimity, or tranquility in our mind at the time, to bring a soothing flavor to the mind, to cool our passion. But in the practice, often what we discover is that our aversion and frustration comes in the face of the oppressive nature of our own mind and body. And one way of beginning to cut through the dislike of that experience is to get fascinatedly curious about what is actually going on. Often we can sit with a vague, hmm, not very, hmm, something's wrong, and just a kind of a vague discomfort with the whole show without really looking very carefully at, well, what is it that I don't like? What is this experience that's so unpleasant? Not really excruciating, painful, but just unpleasant. And why is it that I'm disappointed in this hour of practice? What is the source of this frustration that I feel? When we get curious and we really start to focus on the experience of the body, the mind, in that, or underneath that aversion, that interest can really brighten the mind, really bring a quality of investigation, and uh, we can get enwrapped in that experience. And that enwrappment, or enrapture, can result in great joy, great delight in just being with things as they are, even unpleasantness. This curiosity, this interest, this this investigation, this enraptment with our um, experience can manifest in extreme lightness of mind extreme lightness of mind that's reflected in the body. And the body can often feel very light, very, um, even like we're in the presence of the divine. Just by being with our very mundane physical and mental experience. And when the mind has this degree of zest and interest and curiosity, and this takes delight in discovering and being with experience, the clarity of the mind becomes exquisite. And when the mind becomes light, becomes buoyant, becomes interested and enwrapped, how can we be averse to? How can we dislike? How can we be envious of another's experience? How can we be disappointed or bored? It's not possible 
to have that degree of interest and zest and curiosity and be bored. And so if you find yourself bored, nothing's happening, same old stuff, look closer. Connect and sustain your attention more subtly and continuously, taking interest in and investigating what the nature of boredom is. So this delight, this interest, this this joy is the factor of mind which most directly opposes the dry dullness or the dry brittleness of the aversive mind. The fourth obstruction or hindrance of the mind which distorts our perception, our our experience of the mind and body in any moment is restlessness or agitation or the anxiety that we often feel in a very non-specific way. I think we all have had the experience of feeling very anxious without a specific cause being apparent. Where we just, uh, even here, where we get up from a sitting and we just kind of wander around in a kind of an anxious state or a, a restless uh, toing and froing without settling on our experience. And there's, no, there's really no uh, apparent cause for it. And sometimes restlessness is like that where it's just an excess of energy without it being grounded or without it landing on the momentary experience. And sometimes the restlessness can come from too much effort, trying too hard to see, to be with, or to, to only experience something that we think is good meditation. Sometimes when we hang on to the primary object in the face of a more predominant other experience, which we try to deny, we can end up with this uh, real excess of energy and a real tension and restlessness in the mind. Sometimes also restlessness results from a hypervigilance where we sit ourselves down and we poise ourselves hovering in the air ready to pounce on any experience we have. And that hypervigilance creates a, a very agitated state of mind and body where we're really unable to just be with in a rather tranquil and uh, easy way with our experience. Again, as with all of the obstructions of the mind, the first and most necessary relationship to establish with it is to recognize it. 
And it's amazing how we can walk around for an hour or half a day restless and not notice it. Have you had that experience? We all do at some point. Find ourselves walking madly back to the room to get something before we come to the next sitting. And not noticing that we're very anxious or restless. Or finding that as soon as we slowly and carefully walk to our room, enter the door, close the door, all hell breaks loose. And it's just like the room becomes a place where we can move fast and forget and just... It was like discharge room. <laughs> no apparent reason or no, no, no real um, necessity for it, but just a release of some sort. So beginning to, to, to recognize that restlessness or anxiety or, or uh, that striving energy is present and opening to the very fact without judgment. Just acknowledging, hey, restlessness is here. Very difficult for us meditators now who've been here for a month who know that good meditation has something to do with tranquility and stillness and clarity to acknowledge to ourselves that we're not tranquil and still and equanimous. And our pervasive and well-developed ability to deny the obvious takes hold. It's helpful in the acceptance, in the opening to, in the accepting of restlessness as well as any of the other obstructions of mind, as Joseph suggests, to just Use your mantra of, it's okay. And it is. Restlessness is okay. We can try to look carefully at that state of restlessness in, its, in the big picture and try to reflect on its uh, nature and to bring and to consciously arouse equanimity, tranquility, soothing ourselves to allow this condition to be present and to be okay with it. When we're able to step back and see the whole tinderbox or the whole volcano of restlessness in the mind and the body, we're able to discover the bits and pieces of it, the characteristics of its manifestation in the body and its manifestation in the mind. And in that, we begin to disidentify from it. We begin to see that it has its own nature. It's not us. It's not who we are. We didn't invite it, and we can't really make it go away. We can be with it. We can identify it and disidentify with it. Restlessness like this, 
or anxiety and restlessness can be directly opposed by arousing our confidence, confidence in ourself to be with this state, confidence in the practice to clear the path or to indicate the path through this condition and to bring tranquility or a tranquilizing environment to that state. And so if we find ourselves really anxious and restless, don't go to your room to do slow walking in the dark. Not, this is contraindicated for restlessness. Go outside and walk in the sun. Give yourself plenty of space for the restless mind, for the restless body. I didn't say to run around and act it out, but to mindfully be in a larger space can do a lot to corral uh, restlessness, the restless mind, the restless body. One thing in retreat which most contributes to the feeling of restlessness is talking. Talking to others, talking to yourself. (laughs) And that includes writing notes and narrating your experience. When we don't catch ourselves outwardly talking to others or inwardly talking to ourselves or debating with ourselves or rationalizing to ourselves, the mind goes berserk. When I was in Burma reporting my uh, practices every other day, any day that I would go in and report some restlessness, my teacher would always ask me, who were you talking to? What did you, did you get a letter from home? Did you write a letter? Did you talk to someone? What was going on that stirred up your restlessness? And you might look in your own practice when restlessness is present, what have you been doing? It's quite often quite easy to notice, oh, this, this, this brief letter that I wrote to someone has stirred up a whole pile of thoughts, or this little trip to the office to talk about something has stirred up a whole lot of uh, agitation and restlessness. When we really recommit ourselves to living here in a community in silence and living by the precepts that we all have agreed to, one of which is noble silence, we can do a lot for containing the restless mind. We really have developed a a, a spiritual container for our practice. And each stepping outside of the precepts reduces the effectiveness of this retreat space for you. The factor of mind which most 
directly opposes the discomfort of restlessness is comfort of mind and body. Sukha in the Pali language. And it's really uh, the word for happiness. To make the mind and body happy. To sit comfortably. To put yourself in a comfortable environment. To bring comfort to the mind as much as possible through reflection, through practice. This sukha, or this happy comfort of mind and body, is the result of connecting, sustaining, and joyful interest in our experience. And when that joyful interest mellows out and flows into some tranquility, then the mind and the body can be comfortable. Sometimes with a lot of interest and excitement, the body can be pretty um, uh, hyped up, pretty uh, ecstatic even. But when that ecstasy cools out, calms down, tranquilizes a bit, then the body settles into a very comfortable but alert being. And you may have had moments during the sitting, during the walking, when there was briefly or for even a longer period of time a pervasive sense of everything's okay. That's an expression of, or that's the manifestation of sukha in the mind, where there's a sense of it's workable, it's okay. There may be unpleasant stuff arising. We may not be so clear, but there may be a sense of it's okay. A calmness, a stillness, a, a sense of peace with things as they are. And sometimes there can be a, a really, uh, I, I don't know just what the right word is, but it, it's like the whole experience of mind and body takes a jump to another plateau where the calmness is heightened, the, the knowledge is pervasive, and the presence of mind is very elevated in that tranquility. This is the sukha, or happy comfort of mind and body. And when the mind and body are comfortable, the clarity of the mind, the confidence we have in practice, and the equanimity of the mind are enhanced. And with that enhancement, with that increased clarity, concentration, equanimity, we're really able to understand more clearly the nature of reality. So aversion is directly opposed by joy or delight, zestful interest. Restlessness is directly opposed by happy comfort of mind and body, 
And the last, certainly not the least of the obstructions to clear-mindedness is clinging or attachment, desire. And we know this experience very well. Yet we often don't recognize it. We find ourselves indulging in fantasies of future pleasures, future enjoyments, or remembering past enjoyments. And somehow the comfort and the enjoyment of it obscures our experience of what's actually happening, our recognition of what's actually happening, remembering, planning, fantasizing. When we enjoy, when we continue to insist on enjoying our experiences, we will become attached. When there's that indulged enjoyment of without clearly acknowledging, attachment has to happen. Clinging or desire for its continuance or its reappearance in the future. Again, as with all of the obstructions of the mind, the beginning point for dealing with with clinging or the wanting mind is to recognize it, to acknowledge that it's present in all of its uh, physical and, and mental manifestations. In our society, there are many things to want. The advertising man has learned that the source of uh, desire is endless. And uh, as much as he can put in front of your eyes, he can cultivate and stimulate your desire for it. And so we should learn from that and recognize that desire itself can never be satisfied. A momentary attachment or clinging to an object or an experience can be satisfied with its experience and another need will appear in its place. And I think it's really important to acknowledge that the power of attachment or clinging or to acknowledge that clinging has that power within us or over us much of the time. But in practice, when we begin to notice uh, just how much wanting there is in the mind, we need to be careful not to judge ourselves or to shame ourselves for what or for the fact of wanting and desiring. Our conditioning is such that we can't do otherwise until we wake up. And so it doesn't do any, it isn't so skillful, it brings no wisdom to shame yourself for wanting, for desiring, but rather to recognize that wanting, desiring is present. 
And the desiring mind comes from a sense of insufficiency, not having all that we need. And so it can be directly opposed. It can be confronted or tamed by cultivating and reflecting on the fact that we do have all that we need. In this particular moment, we have what we need. We can let go of wanting something else. When we're able to see, to really connect with and sustain our attention on the process of wanting, not on the object of wanting, but on the process of wanting or clinging, we can see that we can outlast it. If we can identify it and keep noting it, it won't last forever. And it brings a great insight and the energy of of understanding to sometimes stay with a desire or a clinging, keep noting it, and see that it cannot last forever. And it may take some perseverance. It may take some real uh, assertiveness on your part to outlast it. But it's worth the effort in the knowledge that it brings. Then we can see that attachment or clinging is not who we are. And the disidentification is brought about through that clarity of seeing. Attachment or desire directly opposed by that letting go, directly opposed by generosity, giving of what we have, time, effort, knowledge, material goods. But specifically, clinging or the wanting mind is directly opposed by the single-pointedness or the single-focusedness or the one-pointedness of mind that is able to be with this experience and this experience only. And when we're able to connect and sustain our attention and take that joyful interest in and feel reasonably comfortable with our experience, the mind will naturally stay collected and focused on this experience. And when the mind is collected, it doesn't want anything else. No wanting in the mind that is collected on this experience. Where we can have and feel a sense of fulfillment, a sense of completion, or a sense of satisfaction here and now. So I've spoken about the major obstructions to the pure mind. Sloth and torpor, doubt, aversion, restlessness, 
clinging or the wanting mind. They distort our experience of this mind and body. They distort our experience, they obscure our experience of knowing clearly and lucidly in this moment. When they're seen for what they are, as these ephemeral, transitory clouds in the mind, then we can let go of them. We can disidentify through the clarity of seeing. And when delusion or that unclarity is overcome by understanding, the wanting mind is overcome by generosity or letting go. Aversion is overcome by love, by patience. Doubt is overcome by confidence. And when these factors of mind, confidence, love, patience, generosity, clear knowing, tranquility, equanimity, when these factors are present in the mind, happiness has to follow. The definition we have of happiness may have to change as we begin to see what truly brings happiness to our mind. When the mind is clear and lucid, knowing any experience, any object, light and buoyant, we become merged with that stable, calm, clear, non-anxious, powerful wisdom of knowing, where we recognize our autonomous nature and our interdependent connectedness with everything. Not from a place of needing or disliking, but from a place of clarity. Wang Po, who I quoted last week, has this to say, this pure mind, which is the source of all things, shines forever with the radiance of its own perfection. Your true nature is not lost in moments of delusion, nor is it gained at the moment of enlightenment. It was never born and can never die. It shines through the whole universe, filling emptiness, one with emptiness. It is without time or space and has no passions, actions, ignorance, or knowledge. It is all-pervading, radiant beauty, absolute reality, self-existent and uncreated. It is a jewel beyond price. Within that pure mind, impermanence still exists. Dukkha still exists. Anatta, or the uncontrollability of our experience, still exists. The pure mind is the clarity 
in the lucidity of seeing all these. And our sense of happiness in that state of mind, in that recognition of our mind, comes from the seclusion we feel from obstructions, from the torments of the mind. It should be obvious that that happiness, that contentment, that peace of mind that's possible through clarity of understanding can't be found in a book, can't be gotten from a teacher, and you can't buy it. You can only discover it within yourself by paying attention to each and every moment. So maybe we should sit for a couple of minutes. <laughs> 